This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Before we get into today's episode, we would like to acknowledge and pay respects to the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of this land. We pay our deepest respects to the elders, past and present, and to the next generation who we hope to create a different future for. The best career advice that you are not getting is to invest. Hello and welcome to Your Ingle Company, a podcast that makes investing accessible for everyone. I am Maddie Guest and as always, I'm in some very good company with my co-host Sophie Dicker and today her two teas. <laughs> I was saying to Maddie before we started recording that I had like the stupidest mental blank. I made a tea and then I did something else for one minute and then I made a second tea and I was like, now I've got two teas. Mads, I wanted to start off before we get into the thick of it. I want to start off with a little personal deep dive on the day. What was your high low for today? My high today, probably I had to go to the tech lounge with a friend from work and we were just having this really hilarious conversation because the reason why she had to go is because she's working on a deal at the moment and the comments in her um, PowerPoint have all turned to Japanese. And she literally <laughs> went to the tech lounge and she was like, I have a problem. My comments have turned Japanese. And they just looked at her like, what on earth? And we were just having the most hilarious conversation. So that was probably my high. I can imagine that would be like so <laughs> frustrating, like when you're trying to get something done. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it was hilarious. My low is probably, God, I'm getting really bad afternoon slumps at the moment. Get to, I hit that two, three o'clock mark and I just, I'm struggling. That was probably my low. So, Soph, let's get into today's episode. For anyone who is joining us for the first time or for the first time for this series, do you want to start by giving a little bit of a background about what we are doing? So we are looking at companies that the community love that have asked us to do some research into and are building up an investment thesis around these. And it kind of came off the back of being really inspired again to start investing in individual companies. Yeah, off the back of our conversations with Kathy Wood. So we are going to be building up six steps and we'll run you through each of them. So let's go to our community member now and find out what we're going to be deep diving into today. Hey, Maddie and Soph. I recently read how L'Oreal acquired Aesop. Aesop's one of my favorite brands, but is L'Oreal a good investment? What a great suggestion from our community member. I don't think we haven't really spoken much about L'Oreal on the podcast before. To be honest, I think we have and even done a lot of the beauty market. I mean, actually, to be fair, we've done Adore Beauty with both the founder and CEO, so it's pretty good. <laughs> the beauty market's been through a lot recently and we haven't really touched it at all, so it's a good one. It has. So let's maybe start with step number one. Pick your opportunity. What would we say is the opportunity behind L'Oreal or what would we say has sparked us to do a little bit more looking into this company? I feel like where this started was a couple of months ago in one of my group chats with my girlfriends. Someone sent in, L'Oreal has acquired Aesop. 
and they were not happy about it at all. Really? Why were they not happy? I think like Aesop, for anyone who hasn't come across the brand before, it's like an Australian founded brand. It's natural, premium skincare. Everyone loves the poo drops. If you haven't got around them, get around them. Beautiful body wash, beautiful hand wash. But yeah, the sentiment was kind of negative because they was just saying like, it's a premium Australian brand. It's been bought out by L'Oreal. I mean, in fact, it was actually owned by a different company prior, but it was kind of like, oh, this Australian gem is like now being owned by a big behemoth. But regardless, it caught our attention. Yeah, it's funny that that was a negative sentiment. And I do totally get that feeling of, you know, local Aussie brand, even though, as you said, it was actually, I think, owned by a Brazilian company. Yeah, Natura. Yeah, whereas it's funny, I think in my mind when I saw this announcement, I was so excited because it's such a great example of a huge Aussie success story. It was a record deal. It was bought for $3.7 billion, which is the largest price for any luxury brand in Australian history. So I don't know, in my mind, I was like, woohoo, go Aesop. <laughs> yeah, the Aussie founders are doing well because now, Maddie, guess who they're sitting alongside? Who? <laughs> All of these brands. All of these incredible brands for the people that can't see on a podcast. Sophie has just like thrown up five different products in her hands to my camera. And I'm like, okay, amazing, but we're on an audio medium. (laughs) For the listeners at home, we've got the L'Oreal Revitalift Eye Cream. I've started using that because I've seriously got bags under my eyes. I've got the Replica Maison Maglia, I can't (laughs) pronounce it, perfume across the sands. It smells like a fireplace. I've got the CeraVe Cleanser, which is I, oh, I do CeraVe moisturizer. Yes, which is amazing. And then I have the Kiehl's uh, Rare Earth Deep Pore Cleansing Mask, which has actually not done great things for my skin, but we will skip over that. <laughs> L'Oreal represent. So Aesop is in great company. Let's maybe go to step number two and I guess look back at the company's history a little bit. Step number two of our investment thesis is to build out the story. Mads, I feel like you're the historian on this one. You've done a deep dive and you've been telling me all about it. What was L'Oreal like in the early days? Where did it kind of start? Yeah, so the main source for my research for this one, and I will include a link in the episode notes, is the Business Wars um, series between L'Oreal versus Estee Lauder, which we will get into in a little bit. But Business Wars is such a great series where it sort of looks back in history through a lot of major companies that we know today and sort of how they got to where they were. So I highly recommend checking that out. But L'Oreal was founded in 1909 in Paris by a junior chemist who was working as a lab assistant. His name was Eugene Schuler. He was working in the lab one day. He wasn't loving his job. At least this is how business was sets it up. Where are we? Are we in a beauty lab or like a... Oh, no, like a chemist. He's a chemist. Yeah. We're in Paris. We're in a lab. And uh, the junior lab assistant, Eugene Schuler, is sitting there working away and his boss Uh, one of his boss's mates walks in and they start having a conversation over in the corner and Eugene overhears and the friend is working at a beauty um, salon, a hair salon down the road and is complaining that he doesn't want to dye his customer's hair because the dye is super toxic because at the time hair dye had a very heavy lead content which was basically really irritating the scalp and it was just terrible for the hair so at this point Shula pipes up and he's like I can fix that for you I can develop a dye and so 
Apparently, he quits his job on the spot to go and (laughs) develop this dye. And he actually develops the products by testing it out on himself. Wow. And over time, he comes up with these really great products and he goes back to the hair salon owner and he sells the products to him, says that these are great and says, but you better watch out and buy lots because these are going to be flying out the door. And that was the start of L'Oreal because that is exactly what they did. Wow. So that's like really early days, obviously, like it's grown a lot since then. It's not just hair care, it's beauty, wellness, et cetera. Where did it kind of progress past that point of like the initial product? Yeah. So one thing that I do want to touch on sort of leading into that is in the 1940s, Schuller actually had ties to Nazi Germany. So he's in Paris and he was essentially collaborating with the German occupiers of Paris at the time. And he was part of this group called La Cagoule, which is an anti-Semitic an anti-communist and an anti-republican far-right group that essentially wanted Paris run as a dictatorship. I just thought this was a super interesting part of L'Oreal's history that before researching this episode, I definitely had no idea about. In the early 1940s, in the time that Nazi Germany was occupying France, Schuller's personal wealth grew tenfold because of his relationships with the occupying people state. Like because he was selling products to them? He, he was actually, he was the co-director of a paint company and he was selling the, occupiers isn't the right word, but go with me, just ignore it. He was selling the occupiers paint. But also during that time, because he was able to get um, access to resources and things that otherwise companies wouldn't have been able to get access to, he actually was able to grow L'Oreal, I think by four times. They nearly quadrupled their income. So coming out of that period, he actually hired a lot of the people that were part of that group, La Cagoule, including his daughter Lillian's husband, whose name is Andre Betancourt, and he became the vice president of L'Oreal. And that is because he believed that, you know, a business is no place for young women. They should be at home and they should be doing, you know, be in the kitchen, doing organizing or sort of running the household. So he gave a really senior job in L'Oreal to his daughter's husband. And so where did it kind of progress from their post-war period? Yeah, so in 1957, Schuller died, the founder, and Lillian, his daughter, inherited the entire of the L'Oreal empire at age 35. And from that point, she was on the board of directors until 1995. And then she was actually the director of the board until Feb of 2012, which was a couple of years before she passed away and her grandson took over when she finally did step down. So when she did pass away in 2017, at that point, uh, she still owned 30.5% of the company. And Nestle actually owned a really large portion as well. So Nestle still today is the second largest shareholder in L'Oreal. Another fun fact for you. And the reason why they did that is because when there was a change of government in Paris or in France, there were a lot of fears around nationalization of big brands. So Lillian feared that the government was essentially going to come in and try and take control of L'Oreal. So she tried to sell off some of the brand to another company to sort of shore up that investment that they had. That's really interesting. I feel like Nestle is also a big behemoth that owns a lot of brands. Did they have influence in L'Oreal like moving into different spaces and diversifying into different products? I'm not sure how much influence they had. I mean, I'm sure that they would have. They obviously have a lot of expertise and they're a really successful brand as well. 
Today, L'Oreal is the leading manufacturer and seller of beauty products, and they have products across five sort of main segments, which are skincare, makeup, hair care, fragrance, and hair coloring. Skincare being the largest one, definitely the biggest money maker for them. It brings in around 40% of their total revenue. And part of that is just because skincare, number one, it's a routine buy for people. Once they buy it, they buy it again and again. And number two, great margins. <laughs> so I feel like setting the scene, L'Oreal today really is one of the biggest, if not the biggest beauty company in the world, encompassing something like 150 brands under its name. Yeah, I mean, to give you a sense of it, some of my favorites, you know, Maybelline, Garnier, Redken, the hair brand, Kerastasi, which I use, CeraVe, La Roche-Posay, Lancome, Kiehl's, Yves Saint Laurent, even Ralph Lauren and Valentino. Prada, all come under L'Oreal. The list seriously goes on. Sometimes you just don't realize that like all of these brands just come under one massive company. Yeah. Well, you just think that the brand is the company itself. You don't realize that there's this ginormous parent company above it. Well, so let's, after the break, get into who are L'Oreal's key competitors? Because like we said, there are a lot of brands under L'Oreal, but I think you will be surprised by what we are going to talk about next. But before we do, a quick break for our sponsors. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So before the break, we were talking about how there are so many brands that we didn't realize came under the L'Oreal parent company. So step three of building up our investment thesis is to know the market. One of my favorite facts or things that I learned from researching this episode is just how many beauty brands actually come under a very few number of major sort of parent companies. I think what you're saying is like it's a very consolidated market. So some industries are super fragmented. There's lots of little players, but this one, there's seven key players and lots of little brands kind of fall under them. Yes. So knowing the market with this one was actually kind of fun because I feel like we use beauty and skincare products every day. But a bit of background with the beauty market, I think it's just good to set the scene. It's kind of struggled over the past couple of years, particularly because of COVID. I know you said before that, you know, your skincare is your staple. You're always going to be buying into it. But a lot of like beauty is touch and feel. And over that COVID period, there was lockdowns and there was increasing costs, supply chain issues. And for a lot of the big beauty brands, they really kind of suffered over that period. One Australia specific example is that, you know, the the big beauty company BWX? 
Yes, and I know it because they acquired uh, go-to skincare during COVID or in 2021 or maybe two. Last year, oh no, sorry, this year, very recently this year in April, they actually went into voluntary administration. So they kind of ran out of money and that was because they have spent a lot of money on acquisitions, maybe not the best strategy for them, but a lot of their brands, like have you ever seen like Sukin in like um, Chemist Warehouse? Like they didn't do that great over that COVID period and so – it's just good to set the background that the beauty industry has really kind of suffered a lot. I mean, in 2022, Revlon also went bankrupt. Yeah, the US arm. When I was thinking about beauty, it's good to know that there's kind of been a bit of a rough period. So it's like when we're looking more to the future of the market, like who's going to come out on top and why. But how would you say L'Oreal sort of matches up to its competitors? Is it the number one player? What's the size like? I would say that Estee Lauder is probably one of the biggest competitors. Just to give a bit of background, those seven players that we mentioned earlier are L'Oreal, Estee Lauder, Johnson & Johnson, she... Shiseido. Shiseido. <laughs> <laughs> the Japanese beauty brand. Koshi, Unilever and Procter & Gamble. So they're kind of like your key seven players. But I think the biggest comparison really is between L'Oreal and Estee Lauder. When you do it just for like a like-to-like product kind of example, L'Oreal has your Lancome. Lancome. Yeah. Say it like the French. <laughs> yeah. And Estee Lauder has like your La Mer. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Now it. L'Oreal has your Mason. <laughs> that's good. L'Oreal has your Mason Magdiella. Don't, can't help you with that one. <laughs> which is the perfume I've been talking about. Whereas Estee Lauder has Le Labo. So for all the Santel girlies out there. L'Oreal has CeraVe and Estee Lauder has The Ordinary. So I think like in terms of products, they're really like to like. And I think they're the best kind of hair to compare. One thing that is worth noting is L'Oreal is the number one player in this industry. So they are in a stronger financial position than Estee Lauder. To put some numbers on it, L'Oreal did around 38 billion euros of revenue in 2022, whereas Estee Lauder did around 15 billion euros of revenue. And L'Oreal's operating profit has also been growing at about a 6% annual rate compared to Estee Lauder's 11%. But I guess on that, Estee Lauder is growing at a faster rate. They're also sort of growing off a smaller base, whereas L'Oreal is, they're doing double the revenue of Estee Lauder essentially. So that's not necessarily surprising. Yeah, I think that's one of the arguments of when you're comparing these two, which is doing better. I think a lot of the research and in the articles, you see that Estee Lauder is almost because it's smaller, it has a bit more room to grow. Whereas because L'Oreal is such a big behemoth beast, it's like the stock price is already at that 400 euro mark. Is it kind of where that value is going to sit for a while? Whereas Estee Lauder has maybe potentially some more room to grow. But I think the overall consensus is like L'Oreal is number one. So so if that is number three, know the market and know the competitors of L'Oreal, let's move on to step number four now. And that is asking what is the moat? What is stopping competitors from, I guess, taking market share or being better than removing business from L'Oreal? Well, it's funny you mentioned market share, Mads, because I think market share is probably one of the biggest moats it's so huge the first point that I really want to cover here comes down to the size of L'Oreal because of L'Oreal's size they are able to invest an incredibly large amount of money into research and development R&D so around three percent of their sales each year goes to R&D which in 2022 equated to over 1.1 billion euros Wow. And is that researching new products, bringing things to market? Exactly. Yeah. It's also researching new ways of doing things. So that leads nicely to my next point, which is around patience. So I'm going to go into reading mode for a second here because I want to get what patients are right because 
I guess I didn't fully understand why it's so important. Yeah. And a patent is an exclusive right granted for an invention, usually a product or a process that is a new way of doing things or a technical solution to a problem. And the reason why it's beneficial is because it essentially hands the creators and the manufacturers of the protected work a monopoly over that work for an extended period of time. So because L'Oreal is doing so much research and developing so many new products and ways of doing things, they are able to patent a lot of those things. It means that competitors, for example, Estee Lauder, can't come in and just rip off their products because L'Oreal has actually patented what they've developed and the way that they do it. And I can imagine with a lot of, say, like, for example, premium skincare brands, like this is just my first Mm. thought, say if you have like an eye cream that does amazing things and there's a certain formula in that. It kind of comes, it takes away the beauty part and it really brings in the chemistry. Like you almost have like a medical grade product that no one else can infiltrate. And if that does well and people love it, then someone can't replicate it necessarily. Yeah, think of things like anti-aging technology, that kind of stuff, which is has a massive impact and can really win a consumer. That's what is, I guess, so important in this industry. The other thing that I definitely want to touch on, which again goes back to that idea of scale and size, is L'Oreal's global presence. So they have 4,000 researchers around the world, over 4,000 researchers, and they have six research centers in key areas all around the world. And the reason why that is so important is because it's one thing to develop a beauty brand for a local market and to get traction in that market and say to be successful in Australia, for example. But it is a completely different thing to then be able to take that product and sell it in different countries. Even things like ethnicity, right? The color of your skin. That actually requires completely different products in order to have the same and really great effects for the skin if we're using skincare as an example. So the global scale that L'Oreal has and the investment in research at this scale all around the world is really what sets it apart. That's a, such an important point as well because that you read so many stats that companies fail because they haven't been able to infiltrate into a new market. Like a product could do really well in Australia and it's just not going to sit well in the US for whatever reason. So like having that on the ground market research is like, I mean, small companies don't have the possibility of doing it. So I can understand why that's such a big moat. Yeah, which leads us really nicely to the next point, which is L'Oreal's strategy around acquisitions. So we started off this episode talking about the ASOP acquisition. They bought ASOP because they identified that it was a really well-performing brand. And L'Oreal does this a lot. Essentially, because of their size and power and experience, they are able to watch the market. And whenever they see a brand that is doing really well, they're able to buy their competitors before they scale to a size where they're actually a true threat. And that ability to do that, to essentially just buy your competition and then add it to your own brand and be able to benefit from that is massive. They are able to buy local brands, for example, ASOP, which was doing really well in the Australian market and also started to expand to similar markets like the UK and the US. They can now use their research and development and their expertise to make ASOP a global brand by adjusting it for each market. They are able to sort of use their size and use their experience to acquire brands that are doing really well in local markets and then help them expand all around the world and I guess take them to the next level and get even more out of them, help them to be even more successful. Is there a curveball argument to that? Because, I mean, it sounds like amazing that they have this ability to acquire. And I'm thinking, is there any like downside? I think bringing back to 
maybe people wouldn't be buying ASOP products as much or other products when they know it's been owned is, is being owned by such a behemoth or is it really just truly a positive? The thing is, most of the time we don't realize that these brands are all owned by someone. And as we said in the market section, you know, there are 182 beauty brands owned by seven major leaders. Almost all of the brands that we interact with that are sort of you know, in chemist warehouse and things like that, they're not being made by, you know, a little chemist who's down the road. Of course, there are some of those. And absolutely, you know, the more that we can buy local, the better. Conserving Beauty is a great one that you and I have both talked about. We had Tars, the founder on the podcast a couple of months ago, and being able to buy beauty products who are created by someone like that is such a great thing to be able to do. But I think most of the time people don't realize that they're buying companies, they're buying products, sorry, that are owned by these massive companies. So maybe then you've kind of pointed out one of the downsides in that argument is that when it's such a big company, and I mean, we can get into devil's advocate later, but when it's such a big company, there's no transparency in where you're buying something from and where it's coming from. So even though they can grow and make all these amazing acquisitions, it's kind of makes the water a little bit more murky. One more thing that I do want to touch on before I, I guess, hear what your thoughts are on the (laughs) moat, I've really gone to town on this one, (laughs) is because of these acquisitions and because they are able to, I guess, own so many, such a wide range of different brands, they're really able to benefit from what I would refer to as pricing structure. So L'Oreal have premium brands and we touched on those earlier. They have brands like Prada, Ralph Lauren, but then they also have brands like CeraVe, which are really cheap and found in Chemist Warehouse. And L'Oreal can really benefit from without damaging any one brand by it being perceived as cheap or not luxurious. They're able to, I guess, benefit from all stages of the market. And they're also able to benefit from this idea of premiumizing the consumer. So they can get your eye in at this point when we're not wanting to spend as much money on with products like CeraVe. And then as we get older and as we start making heaps of money from this podcast, you know, maybe we can move up the line and start buying nicer and nicer products. And L'Oreal gets to benefit from each one of those stages. It's kind of like it's proofing itself, financially proofing itself for everyone's stage, different stages of life. Exactly right. Any thoughts? What else would you say is, I guess, stopping L'Oreal's competition from taking market share? The one thing I kind of turned to first when we started looking at L'Oreal was really around ESG concerns, environmental concerns mainly. Yeah, such a big one for the beauty industry. Yeah, because I was going to say the beauty industry is completely rife with greenwashing. And when you look at it as a whole, you're buying a bunch of plastic, you're using a bunch of chemicals. And so much water as Tars taught us. Yeah, so much water. And so I think that was like one of the things where I was like, maybe this is a downside to buying into the beauty industry, which I do actually think it is. But when I deep dived a little bit more into L'Oreal as a company, I actually found that they're probably paving the way for changing the story about sustainability with beauty. So in 2012, they appointed Alexandra Pouts as their chief sustainability officer. And thing I love about her is she's a she is a lawyer and she worked at Amnesty International for human rights mm. so she's really passionate about that space and now she sits in the position of chief corporate responsibility officer and I'm just going to read a couple of the 2030 targets that they've made because I think it's quite impressive by 2025 they want every factory office warehouse to be carbon neutral and use a hundred percent renewable energy By 2030, it wants to reduce carbon emissions of consumer products by 25% and decrease greenhouse gas emissions as a result of transport by 50%. 
But they have a really balanced attitude, which I love about this because Alexandra, every time she speaks, comes out and is like, look, we are a beauty brand, but we're going to do the best that we can. And we're trying to set really sustainable goals. And I think that's quite important because the whole argument of greenwashing, where brands say that they're sustainable, but they're not, I think it ties into when you have a balanced leader, it really helps to see a bit of transparency around what they're doing in the space. So I think one of their moats is going to be that because they have such size, because they have such scale, they're going to be actually able to invest in making, like putting that upfront cost because turning sustainable is expensive, putting that upfront cost and actually doing the good work that the beauty industry needs. I mean, you can think of it one way, which is they have so much work to do because they have so many brands that fall under them and, you know, making sure that each one of those brands is as sustainable and green and clean as possible is a lot of work. But I guess on the flip side, if they can set up these structures and, you know, invest in turning this story around, then at least they can then spread that across all of the brands and the cost will hopefully be far less very soon. To your point about acquisitions previously, they're not just having to do this work from the ground up. They are acquiring like sustainability brands, like both beauty brands, but also brands that just work in that space. Like in March of this year, so only a couple of months ago, they became an investor in a biotechnology company called Geno, which provides L'Oreal brands with a platform to ferment plant sugars and produce sustainable chemicals for beauty products. So they can partner, yeah, they can really partner with people and like a small company might not necessarily be able to do that, but they have found a way to not just go from the ground up. Yeah, that's great. There's definitely a lot of potential there. So Soph, let's now get into, I guess, sort of tearing all of our arguments apart. Step number five of building your investment thesis is to be your own devil's advocate. Let's go back to ESG. Now that we've just made the case for ESG, let's tear it apart. Go for it. Well, I just think, I don't know if it's necessarily L'Oreal specific. L'Oreal has obviously had claims in the past for greenwashing and not doing great things. There was this whole thing in the early 2000s about how they use these products. There's a product called Mika. I think that's what it's called. And it makes like lip gloss shiny and your eyeshadow shiny. And they had years of there being um, news articles about them exploiting children in mines who were mining for this rock. And it happened across so many brands. L'Oreal doesn't have a clean slate at all. But I think just in general, when you're looking at an industry, if you're looking to invest sustainably, I don't think it's necessarily the best industry to be investing in. I don't think it's there yet. And to your point earlier, like invest in, like try and somehow invest in the smaller companies by buying their good products that are actually making a change rather than putting your money into these big behemoths that really, even though they do look like they're doing good things, a lot of behind the scenes, it's probably not great just yet. I am also going to tear apart one of the arguments that I made earlier around this whole barriers to scale idea. The fact that, you know, L'Oreal is so big that it means that they can acquire competitors and, you know, invest in research and development. Because with the rise of online digital channels, you know, TikTok, Instagram, so much marketing and I guess promotion is done on social media now. I really do have a question around whether those barriers to scale are as influential. You know, what marketing campaign can L'Oreal put out versus 
what can the local, you know, conserving beauty, to use that as an example again, that can really cut through to me on a medium like TikTok. So I want to put a question to you. When was the last time you bought a new product and what influenced you to buy that? product probably social media marketing as you said because it's if it comes up on your instagram or tiktok you can easily just click see more and then purchase it and it's often because i see someone who i admire using it particularly if it's skincare if they've got great skin i'm like i will use that so true so a recent study which was reported by forbes and i'm just going to read it for a moment here showed that 42 percent of 18 to 24 year olds are inspired by social media when it comes to makeup i mean i spend so much time watching people just talking at the screen whilst doing their makeup and showing what products they're using And according to beauty brand agency MSLK, user-generated photos are trusted seven times more than traditional advertising. So seeing real people giving tips and sharing, you know, their beauty secrets, it creates both trust in the brand, but also a sense of FOMO, which is definitely what I'm feeling about Charlotte Tilbury at the moment. Yeah, I think that's so interesting because I've also seen so many like celebrity brands, for example, like KKW or Kylie Cosmetics or Rihanna's Fenty Beauty. And because they're kind of those small brands but already have such a big platform, it's like they can take so much of the market share. But also it's now making me start to think like they're, they can be really agile, whereas maybe L'Oreal struggles to be as agile because it is so big. One final point that I want to make here, I was reading an article this afternoon, which was about LVMH, which is the massive fashion brand. They are going hard at growing their beauty business. And to do that, they have been recruiting executive staff from L'Oreal. So L'Oreal actually fired a lawsuit saying that uh, someone had, you know, broken their non-compete clause. But You know, another thing when you become a brand this big, people that work for you are so important and they are getting targeted by other really big brands too. So maybe they're going to be losing some of their staff. (laughs) So to round out point number five, you've got to pull apart your argument when you start to love a company because there's always often downsides. But that brings us to our final point, which is number six, to build the investment thesis, which is to look to the future. Is L'Oreal a company that you would invest in for the long term. Maddie, do you have an argument for that? All right. I'm going to keep it tight because we have gone way over time for this episode. I think we are enjoying our chat far too much. But in my mind, this really comes down to, I guess, the macro trends that are playing out these days. So the first one that comes to mind is the increased focus on health and wellness. And L'Oreal is really well positioned to, I guess, benefit from that trend. The next one, and probably the most important in my mind, I know we're having a chat about this one before we got on for the recording, but it's the emerging markets middle class. So countries like China, like India, they are growing really rapidly and there is a whole portion of the population that are becoming more and more wealthy and who are able to buy and invest more and more in things like skincare and beauty. If L'Oreal is going to be successful in the long term, they really need to be able to continue to because they are already cater to and I guess fill the needs and meet the demand of this part of the population. So if you think that L'Oreal is going to be the front runner in that space, it's likely an investment that you're going to be looking at. But at the same time, it's a big company. It's grown a lot. Is it almost sitting at the top of its valuation? I don't know. It's a hard one to know who's going to take the front spot. 
Yeah, the final thing I will just add on that is the aging population as well. You know, as we get older, there's going to be more and more demand for, you know, that skincare, trying to stay younger. So I do think that L'Oreal is well-placed to benefit from a lot of these, but really the requirement for its future success is whether it can continue to fill the needs of these consumers and continue to premiumize these consumers. So get them in early with the cheaper products and then hold them throughout their whole lifetime by continuing to up grade what they're using with their more premium brands but Maddie as we have discussed before and we will discuss again who knows what the next hundred years are going to look like I do know that that aging filter on TikTok has made me go and buy the L'Oreal no joke revita lift for under my eyes because I felt sick about it oh my gosh did L'Oreal make that filter so I would go buy their product because that would be so smart oh my gosh smart well if you have enjoyed today's episode we should definitely wrap it up there but please we would love if you could share it with a friend send it into your group chat find out what everyone thinks about L'Oreal join us on our social media platforms we've both got Instagram and TikTok it's a lot of fun at YIGC podcast or join 2000 plus others in our Facebook group YIGC investing podcast discussion group if you have another idea for a company that you would love us to deep dive into please get in touch otherwise you'll hear from us next week catch you then bye you have been listening to an equity mates media production in the spirit of reconciliation equity mates media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout australia and their connections to land sea and community we pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all aboriginal and torres strait islander peoples today this podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.